Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number eight, the book of Romans, chapters two and three. Well, if you think that after going through the mind-twistingly difficult words of Paul in Romans 2 last week, um, that that was pretty tough, that it was going to get any easier this week, think again. Part of what makes this so challenging is that Paul's terms and the way they're translated into English are so strange-sounding to us. But even more, if we're truly going to understand Paul's words, then we have to do that from the perspective of his 2,000 years ago Jewish cultural understanding of what he meant by what he said. We left off at verse 17 of chapter 2 as Paul was continuing his diatribe against the believers of Rome, the city of Rome. People he had never met. And while in chapter 1 he took aim mostly at Gentiles, here in chapter 2 he's taking aim mostly at Jews. But always these Gentiles and Jews are assumed to be believers in Yeshua. However, Paul seems to be greatly concerned about what it is that they actually believe and practice, what doctrines their leaders and elders have taught them, and he clearly has a suspicion that while they claim trust in Yeshua, they also continue on some level to participate in the anything-goes Roman Hellenistic society that is permeated with sexual deviance and perversion. Now, I want to make a point that I haven't since the introduction to the book of Romans. While in the field of literature, the style that Paul is writing is in is legitimately called diatribe, yet from a Hebrew viewpoint, he's merely making his case as any good studied rabbi would. We find his style of making an argument used throughout the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish religious rulings that we would correctly call halakha, Jewish law. It is true that the first part of the two works that together make up the Talmud, that's the Mishnah and the Gemara, wouldn't exist for a couple of hundred years after Paul's day. But that doesn't change the fact that the Talmud merely records and uses the traditional way that rabbis had long been debating and forming their religious interpretations and the the resulting religious regulations that control Judaism. Regulations that we call Jewish law or halakha. This reality is going to become more visibly into play as we get into Romans chapter 3. But it also plays a role in Romans chapter 2. Now since Christian Bible commentators have historically been uninterested 
and factoring in the realities of the Jewish society of, of Second Temple Judaism, in other words, Christ's and Paul's era, into their commentaries. And this is because their view is that the New Testament belongs to Gentile Christian followers and Jewishness plays no real role. And because of the additional understanding that the deciphering of the Dead Sea Scrolls has recently brought to us only in the last decade is it finally being acknowledged that much of what Paul says in his letters he says in the Jewish idiom of his day. Thus it has a definite effect upon the meaning. However, you know, change is a slow process. And how these new findings will affect ancient and cherished church doctrines, most of which have been derived, by the way, from the book of Romans, that's unclear. What is clear, however, is that there will be an effect. Much of it not welcome by the more established and well-known Christian denominations that have little interest in challenging some of their own faith principles that have made them who they are. So don't expect to take what you learn to other believers and have them instantly embrace it. Change takes time. Let's read the final few verses of Romans chapter 2 together. We're going to start at verse 17. Verse 17. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that's page 1404. 1404. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rest on Torah, and you boast about God, and know His will, and give your approval to what's right, because you've been instructed from the Torah, and if you have persuaded yourself that you are a guide to the blind, you're a light in the darkness, an instructor for the spiritually unaware, a teacher of children, since in the Torah you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, don't you teach yourself? Preaching thou shalt not steal, do you steal? Saying thou shalt not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Detesting idols, do you commit idolatrous acts? You who take such pride in Torah, do you by disobeying the Torah dishonor God? As it says in the Tanakh, for it is because of you that God's name is blasphemed by the Goyim, by the Gentiles. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says. But if you are a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who have had a brit milah, a circumcision ceremony. And you have Torah written out, but you violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the real Jew is one inwardly. True circumcision is of the heart. It is spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. The word circumcision is repeated numerous times in these verses. 
as is the word uncircumcision, which isn't really a proper English word. And the reason that uncircumcision isn't a real world, a word is that it's an oxymoron. It's not something that can rationally exist, at least on the physical level. That is, a male cannot be circumcised and then have it reversed, uncircumcised. And although I am told that there actually have been surgical attempts to hide a former circumcision in modern times, even so, especially in Paul's day, circumcision was a uncircumcision rather was a physical impossibility. No one would ever think in terms of having his foreskin somehow reattached. Therefore, a person who Paul identifies as being uncircumcised merely means a male who's not yet had a circumcision. Since Jewish males are given no choice in the matter, they're circumcised as infants on the eighth day after their birth, then the uncircumcised can only mean Gentiles. So there is a distinct difference between what Paul is meaning when he says the uncircumcised as opposed to uncircumcision. Uncircumcised means a Gentile. Uncircumcision means a Jew who had a circumcision, but now it's been reversed. But since that's physically impossible, then obviously Paul means uncircumcision in a different sense. But what sense? Now the reason that Paul uses the word circumcision is precisely because in this portion of his letter, he is talking primarily to Jews. And for a Jewish male, there existed then and exists now no more emphatic indication of his Jewishness than having been circumcised. Circumcision was in many ways a point of great pride because it was felt that God so exalted his Jewish people that to be Jewish was part and parcel of being accepted by God as righteous. So Gentiles, the uncircumcised, were generally seen as evil, not righteous, and could expect only God's curses and His wrath. But Jews, the circumcised, generally thought of themselves as good and righteous, and they could expect only God's blessings and His mercy. Now, trying to puncture this wrong attitude of his fellow Jews is largely what the book of Romans has thus far been about. As step by step, Paul builds a case for accepting the gospel of Christ that he teaches. A gospel that applies equally to Jews and Gentiles. And it begins by the Jews he is currently addressing, understanding that this sense of security that they had been relying on, that is, that merely being Jewish, merely being circumcised, was sufficient to be seen as righteousness by Yehovah. And it is really a false sense of security, because it's not true. 
So if you are a Jew reading what Paul says in the first part of the final verses of chapter 2, then it certainly appears that Paul is saying that circumcision does not and never had any real value. And I suspect that many Jews were offended and never read any further. And I assure you from having taught Romans many years ago in a very different setting, most Christians take this as meaning that Jews no longer have any special status before God and so satisfied they don't read any further either. So Paul begins by making it crystal clear who it is that he is challenging. He says, if you call yourself a Jew. Well, now would be a good time to demonstrate something that might not have occurred to you. The terms Hebrew and Israelite were no longer in fashion in the New Testament era. Uh, era. Rather, the term was Yehudi. Yehudi. We translate that into English as Jew. There is a, another very important dynamic that we should not miss about the New Testament. Tribalism has given way to nationalism. That is, the Old Testament dealt with Israel at a time when they were organized as 12 distinct tribes. And the tribes each continually vied to be the most dominant of their brother tribes. This was not a plot, it wasn't an aberration within Israel. It was and remains the very essence of the tribal way of life and social structure. And we see it still being played out today in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, Pakistan, other backward places where Islam dominates. But when the ten Israelite tribes of the north, typically in our Bibles called Ephraim, when they were exiled by the Assyrians from their tribal territories in the early 700s BC, then the rivalries among the tribes of Israel all but ceased. All that remained of Israel were two tribes. The tribe of Judah, this huge dominant tribe, and the much smaller and weaker tribe of Benjamin. And without doubt, there were also minuscule remnants of the other ten tribes who declared loyalty to Judah or through family ties due to marriage were allowed to remain within the tribal territories of Judah and Benjamin. But especially upon the return from the Babylonian exile, around 500 BC, the Hebrews who came back to the land saw themselves as more unified, belonging to one nation, Judah, not divided up into a number of particular tribes. Now certainly they remembered, no doubt they were usually very proud of, their ancient family heritage that would have tied them to one another of the 12 tribes. But you know, just as Americans can look back a few generations and, and we can be aware of our heritage as having come from perhaps German or English or French or Asian stock, we don't identify ourselves or feel any particular loyalty to Germany, France, England, or maybe China. 
We think in national terms. We are Americans. So, by Paul's day, Jew was a national term, like American. And that indicated an attachment to the nation of Judah. Now, the diaspora Jews, well, they personally felt and were seen by Gentiles as maintaining a hereditary tie to the nation of Judah, and therefore they maintained a certain measure of loyalty to Judah, often above the loyalty to the country and the culture that they now lived among. And this was always a source of problems for the Jews, and it regularly led to persecutions against them. That is, the Jews tended not to fully assimilate into whatever nation they wandered into, but rather they set up their own separate Jewish communities. And at the bottom of this mindset to disperse, but also to be separate, was the issue of circumcision, which was the foundation of their desired identity as Jews. So you see, circumcision has always played a big role in Judaism. Thus, when Paul goes through this rather frank, harsh, a little bit tedious and repetitive diatribe in verses 17 through 29, it's because of the cultural reality for the Jews at that time that I've just described. In many ways, this is all about what Paul sees as a bad attitude. And he was intent on adjusting it. Paul saw the issue of circumcision in the sense that the Jews typically thought of it, not only as an unnecessary wall of division between believing Jews and believing Gentiles that God had never authorized, but also as a possible barrier to Jews accepting the true message of the gospel and accepting their own Jewish Messiah. Because after all, if in all their Jewish pride they truly believed that by their Jewishness expressed most fundamentally by circumcision, if that automatically brought them righteousness before God, why would they need to be saved by the gospel of Christ? Now Paul explains that as Jews, they have convinced themselves that since they hear the law spoken, then they must know what is right and what is wrong. So how is it that since they see themselves as especially qualified guides to the blind, instructors to the spiritually unaware, meaning Gentiles, that the very things gleaned from the law that they instruct others to do, they themselves violate. They claim to have all the advantages of being God's chosen people, of being the privileged receivers and keepers of God's word to humankind, but in the end, they don't do what God's word demands. I mean, let's remember who the teachers of the law were in Paul's day. It was the Pharisees. 
And what did the Pharisees live by? And what did they teach? Halakha. Tradition. Jewish law. Even though Jews said among themselves that they obeyed the law, for them, the law was not actually the original law of Moses and it hadn't been for several centuries. They lived according to religious rulings, halakha, that various groups of Pharisees taught in the synagogues. And you know what? We hear Yeshua reel against this in the Gospel of Luke. You can turn there if you like, but I'm going to read to you from Mark 7, 1 through 14. Mark 7, 1 through 14. The Paroshim, that's the Pharisees, and the Torah teachers who had come from Jerusalem gathered together with Yeshua and some uh, saw, uh, and saw that some of his Talmudim, his disciples, ate with ritually unclean hands without doing nitilat yadim, that's ritual hand washing. For the Pharisees, and indeed all the Judeans, holding fast to the tradition of the elders, they do not eat unless they have given their hands a ceremonial washing. Also, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have rinsed their hands up to the wrist. And they adhere to many other traditions, such as washing cups and pots and bronze vessels. The Parushim and the Torah teachers asked him, Why don't your disciples live in accordance with the tradition of the elders, but instead they eat with ritually unclean hands? And Yeshua answered them, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it's written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. Their worship of me is useless because they teach man-made rules as if they were doctrines. You depart from God's command. You hold on to human tradition. Indeed, he said to them, you've made a fine art of departing from God's commandment in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if someone says to his father or mother, well, I've promised as a gift from God, a gift to God rather, what I might have used to help you. Well, then you no longer let him do anything by his father or mother. Thus with your tradition, which you've handed down to you, you, know, you nullify the word of God. And you do other things like this. Wow. So the result of this hypocritical behavior of these believing Jews, believing Jews, that Paul is berating in chapter 2, is that God's name, he says, as a result of what you're doing, God's name's being blasphemed by Gentiles. In other words, these Jews who think their Jewishness, especially if they're marked by circumcision, gives them special privilege before God. And even those who claim to have some sort of belief in Yeshua don't live the good and righteous lives that are the standard presented in the true law, the Torah, the law of Moses, 
And the result is the Gentile nations think that what Jewish believers believe is all rather worthless. Since it certainly doesn't seem to be reflected in their lives, these Jews Paul is addressing are hurting the cause of the gospel. Wow! Man, what an indictment! And how deeply we all had better think about this as it pertains to ourselves, to whatever congregation or fellowship we might belong to. Are we so rules conscious, so firmly entrenched in our man-made traditions, so certain we hold all the truth, and yet we don't display and live out the most fundamental elements of our faith so we're mostly just a turn off to people who desperately need Christ but in us they sure don't see any reason to seek Him. Matthew 22, 36-40 Rabbi, which of the mitzvot, which of the commandments of the Torah is the most important? And Yeshua told them you are to love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. This is the greatest, this is the most important command. And second is similar to it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All the Torah and the prophets are dependent on these two commandments. Now most Christians are familiar with verses 37 through 39. But verse 36 and verse 40 are generally overlooked. Verse 36 says that the commandments to love God and love our neighbor are taken from where? Where does it say it's taken from? The law. From the Torah. The law of Moses. Loving God, loving our neighbor is not a New Testament innovation. Christ says it comes from the law. But equally important are the words of verse 40. When Yeshua says that all of the Torah, the law, and the prophets are built upon the foundation of these two bedrock God principles. That means that the Ten Commandments rest upon loving God and loving neighbor. The Ten Commandments are the ten basic divine statements about how we show love to our Creator and we show love to our fellow man. And then the remaining 600 plus laws of the Torah rest upon the Ten Commandments. Each of them is a nuance or a case study of one or another of the Ten Commandments and each gives important instructions regarding everyday circumstances and behaviors and predicaments showing us how to love God, how to love our neighbor in the midst of our circumstances. But if however we take these laws to mean and we live them out is not done in an attitude of sincerely loving God and loving our neighbor, then we've missed the mark. We have not attained 
We have not recognized the standard for righteousness that the law was created to show us. This is precisely what Paul is accusing the Jewish believers of Rome of doing and he's reading them the riot act because of it. They of all people should know better. Because as Jews, they have had every advantage. And especially they've had the law in their midst for 1,300 years. So in verse 25, Paul now takes direct aim at the bullseye of pride of these believing Jews of Rome, their circumcision. They have leaned on that circumcision, depended upon it as proof of their righteousness. And that was never what was intended by God. Now I'm going to step on some toes here. Within the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movement in this insistence among many that they are Torah observant, and you should be as Torah observant as they are within the standard they set or you are less pious than them. This is the 21st century version of Paul's rant in Romans about Jews and their wrong-minded pride and reliance on being physically circumcised indicating to them a national attachment to Judah and a belief that simply being Jewish is what made them righteous. Let me tell you something. No one is Torah observant. None of you. And that goes for the most fastidious, ultra-Orthodox living in Israel as well. None of them are Torah observant. For one thing, about a third of the Torah is directly dependent upon altar sacrifices. A temple, a priesthood, none of which exists. For another, many of the commandments are nearly impossible in today's world under today's laws and governments. This idea of demanding supposed rigid Torah observance according to the standards of some particular group almost always incorporates mostly halakha, tradition, along with a healthy dose of personal preference. Very little of the biblical law of Moses. Does that mean that after years of saying otherwise that I'm now saying we should not obey the law of Moses? Well, as Paul would say, heaven forbid. I'm saying that we need to be humble enough to realize that as hard as we may sincerely try, as we should try, we simply can't do it all and insist that we are Torah observant. Because in some cases, circumstances prevent it. Although, in other cases, such as kosher eating, it can be done rather easily. In other cases, laws are stated, an ancient cultural idiom that no longer exists. We're not even sure how those particular laws were carried out in ancient times. Now at the other end of the scale, I must also say that any excuse for saying that since some laws 
can't be done, then that means we don't have to do any of them. Well, that's just based on poor Bible scholarship. There has, hear this, there has never been a time in Israel's history from the moment they received the law on Mount Sinai that they could do every single law precisely as written. It's never happened in history. Some laws were entirely circumstance related. Some couldn't be done until Israel crossed the Jordan and settled in Canaan. Because of the fall of mankind and the inherent fallen nature of the world, many times one law will inherently conflict with another one did in their non-ideal world, just as it does in our non-ideal world. Once the Israelites got to Canaan, there were other circumstances that prevented some laws from being carried out as written. They certainly couldn't carry out all those laws in exile. But the scriptures make it clear they were never exempted from doing the parts of the law that they could, especially as regarded morality and worshiping God. If the principle is that every single one of the 600 laws and commandments must be doable to its fullest at the current moment or none are enforceable, then never in history has the law been enforceable. But of course the Bible makes it clear that's never been God's attitude or instruction or standard. Even so, as we have learned that the law is not abolished, and as believers in Christ we are indeed to obey it as best we can. We don't attain salvation by it, but rather in obedience we obey the law as the redeemed lifestyle of one who has been saved by grace. We also must not stand in judgment of others because they might do the law somewhat differently than we do. Or perhaps don't do what we strongly believe they ought to do. And we must always carry out our desire to obey the law in light of what our Messiah and Lord taught us. Do the law in the spirit of love under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and do the laws for the purpose and the pattern for which it was intended. And that is to do them in far more than merely the ritual or the letter. So in verse 25, after Paul seems to almost shame the Jews for even having a circumcision, he backtracks. And he says that circumcision certainly has value, but only, only when you do what the law says. Of itself, without accompanying proper behavior, you might as well have your circumcision undone. On the other hand, verse 26 says that if an uncircumcised man, a Gentile believer, lives his life by doing what the spirit and standard of the law requires won't it be 
just as though he is one of God's set-apart people, a Jew. In fact, this Gentile believer will act as a kind of judgment against a believing Jew who knows all about the law and in obedience to the law has even received his circumcision. But he chooses not to be obedient to, be obedient to much of the remainder of the law. Then we get one of the more controversial and difficult statements so far. Verse 28 has Paul saying that a true Jew or a real Jew isn't one who has merely had a circumcision in his flesh. But as it turns out, that's about as far as his faith takes him when it comes to doing the law. And in fact, the point of circumcision is not about an operation in the flesh. Rather, it's about an important spiritual issue. Circumcision was always meant to be an outward sign of an inward spiritual condition. And the internal condition was to be a circumcised heart. Spiritually speaking, not literal. So a Gentile believer who trusts God, a Gentile believer who strives for the standard that the law demonstrates and requires, and he does it with a sincere, loving, contrite heart, is more of a true Jew than a Jew who's had a circumcision and knows the law backwards and forwards, but doesn't do the law. Nor do they have a good spirit about whatever part of it they do do. What is a real Jew? Well, that's been endlessly debated. But clearly to Paul, the standard of whether a person is or is not a real Jew is a spiritual measure. It's not a physical measure. So as it allows for the idea that a believing Gentile should be counted as a real Jew in the sense that Paul means it, I fully agree with that concept. But as Paul clearly says, it is meant he means it in a spiritual sense, not in a literal sense. So it is not that a God-fearing Gentile becomes a physical Jew, or even a national Jew. A believing Gentile does not suddenly have the right to immigrate to Israel as a Jew. It is also not that Gentiles replace physical national Jews. And it is not that Gentiles suddenly acquire a Hebrew heritage or supernaturally find themselves with Israelite genes. Rather it is that Israel, and therefore Jews, this was always about reflecting spiritual ideals of God in his set-apart people. And their main task is to serve God and bring about his will on earth. God was faithful to them. Israel was not faithful to him. 
From the time Abraham was set apart, it was made clear that a Gentile, by declaring Abraham's God as his own God, could become part of the set-apart people. You know, essentially all any Gentile does who comes to the Lord, even in modern times, is to declare that Abraham's God, the God of Israel, is his or her God. It's all we ever do in reality. Although I truly doubt that most Gentile Christians even realize that that's what they're doing when they accept the Lord. Well, because by Paul's day, the term Jew had become more of a national title that also includes a national religion, Judaism, I think I much prefer, and I wish Paul had used, the term true Israelite than true Jew. Because I think Israelite is closer to what he actually intended. I'm not saying the translation is wrong. Technically, see, it was Israel who was meant to embody God's ideal of a set-apart people for himself, not Jews per se. But once again, Paul, of course, speaks in the idiom of his day. And in his day, no one talked any longer about Israelites or Hebrews. Those were more or less dead terms. Rather, it was only about the remnant of the Israelites, the Jews. Now, let's move on to chapter 3. But before we do that, I want to briefly set the stage. First, there never should have been a chapter break at this point. It completely disrupts the flow. And to most believers, it has the force of separating what's being said in chapter 2 from what's being said to begin chapter 3. And second of all, the first few verses of chapter 3 answer the obvious burning question just left hanging at the end of chapter 2. And the question is this. If Israel and the Jews are God's covenant people, and if circumcision is the God-required sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and it's one of the laws of the Mosaic covenant, and if God himself has divided the world into two groups, Hebrews and everybody else, and circumcision is the required ritual to be identified as a Hebrew, then after everything Paul has just said about Gentiles and Jews being equally liable to sin in God's eyes, and therefore being equally liable to God's wrath, what's the point of being a Jew? Why continue with male circumcision as a required sign as being Jewish? I mean, has indeed the advent of Christ changed the entire dynamic and indeed God has backed away from his old covenant people, the Hebrews, and become instead the God of the new covenant people, Gentile believers? Or just as profound, has God abolished the distinction that once existed between Hebrews and Gentiles? That's the questions that's just left hanging as we close chapter 2. So let's open up chapter 3. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're on page 1404. 
then what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. Now, if some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does their faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone were a liar, as the Tanakh says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you are put on trial. Now, if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what should we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict his anger on us? I'm speaking here the way people commonly do. Well, heaven forbid. Else how could God judge the world? But, you say, if through my lie God's truth is enhanced and it brings him greater glory, why am I still being judged merely for being a sinner? Indeed, why not say, as some people slander us by claiming we do say, well then just let us do evil so that good may come of it. Against them the judgment's a just one. So are we Jews better off? Not entirely. For I've already made the charge that all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are controlled by sin, as the Tanakh, Old Testament, puts it. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. At the same time, become useless. There's no one who shows kindness. Not a single one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouths are full of curses, bitterness. Their feet rush to shed blood. And their ways are ruin and misery. And the way of shalom they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now moreover we know that whatever the Torah says, it says to those living within the framework of the Torah in order that every mouth may be stopped, the whole world be shown to deserve God's adverse judgment. For in his sight no one alive will be considered righteous on the grounds of legalistic observance of Torah commands because what Torah really does is show people how sinful they are. But now, quite apart from Torah, God's way of making people righteous in his sight has been made clear. Although the Torah and the prophets give their witness to it as well. And it is a righteousness that comes from God through the faithfulness of Yeshua the Messiah to all who continue trusting. Because it makes no difference whether one is a Jew or a Gentile since all have sinned, all come short of earning God's praise. Now by God's grace, without earning it, all are granted the status of being considered righteous before him through the act redeeming us from our enslavement to sin that was accomplished by the Messiah, Yeshua. God put Yeshua forward as the kapara, the, the atonement, the atoning act for sin through his faithfulness in respect to his bloody sacrificial death. This vindicated God's righteousness because in his forbearance he had passed over with neither punishment nor remission the sins people had committed in the past and it vindicates his righteousness in the presence in the present age by showing that he is righteous himself 
and is also the one who makes people righteous on the ground of Yeshua's faithfulness. So what room is there left for boasting? None at all. What kind of a Torah excludes it? One that has nothing to do with legalistic observances of rules? No, rather a Torah that has to do with trusting. Therefore we hold the view that a person comes to be considered righteous by God on the ground of trusting, which has nothing to do with a legalistic observance of Torah commandments. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Oh yes, indeed, the God of the Gentiles. Because as you will admit, God is one. Therefore he will consider righteous the circumcised on the ground of trusting and the uncircumcised through that same trusting. Does it follow then that we abolish the Torah by this trusting? Heaven forbid. On the contrary, we confirm Torah. Hmm... Paul the rabbi, in a typical Talmud style, then asks the question at hand that is intended to lead to a religious ruling. And the question is, then what advantage has the Jew? Of course, what the question means is, then considering what has been previously said, what advantage does a Jew have over a Gentile, if any? Does it still mean anything to become a member of God's covenant people? Now, if Gentile disciples of Christ answered this question after reading what Paul has just said about the equality of Jews and Gentiles in the first two chapters of Romans, would Paul even seemingly berating his fellow Jews over the matter of circumcision, then we would be compelled to answer no advantage whatsoever. None. And I'm sad to say that is generally what a good portion of the church has done. It would be intellectually dishonest to not admit that if there really is no advantage for being a Jew, if there really is no benefit for being circumcised, this can only mean that the words of the Old Testament are a false witness. Or that God is not the faithful husband to Israel that he's always claimed to be. This is not my original idea. As the renowned Bible commentator Charles Cranfield once courageously said about this passage, The question raised here is nothing less than the question of the credibility of God. I want to paraphrase that. If throughout the Torah and the Tanakh, the Old Testament, God could claim an ongoing faithfulness to His people, even in the face of their faithlessness to Him, and he could promise them he would be their God forever. If God could establish a set-apart people, lead them into four centuries of slavery in Egypt, rescue them, give them the Torah, 
guide them through a forbidding wilderness to their own land and offer them a justice system that promised atonement for their sins and that this justice would be forever and then abandon it all and give it instead to Israel's enemies the Gentiles what sort of God is this? Why should we believe the promises of the New Testament that are supposed to be forever? I mean, if God could simply extend it to his worshipers and then pull it all back from us, if he gets upset enough or he changes his mind. Cranfield is essentially posing the question that I posed in my introduction to Genesis many years ago. Christianity honestly believes that God broke his promises to Israel. Revoked not one, but two covenants that he said would be forever. The Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenants. And then he made a new one with a new set of rules and gave it to Gentiles. So if this is possible, if indeed that's what happened, why should any of us believe that at some point God might not revoke our new covenant, give us yet a newer one with entirely different terms than the previous two? One that perhaps doesn't even involve Christ. I mean, the good news is, you could call it that, is that this long-held Christian premise is a completely false one based simply on anti-Jewish prejudice. God did not abrogate any of his covenants. He has stayed completely faithful to his word and he gives us no reason to suspect that he won't always be faithful to his word. Paul, the articulate rabbi, even nuances his question to the straw man a little bit more by asking a second question. He says, what's the value of being circumcised? So the issue of circumcision for believers is back on the table. And he answers it. Much in every way. Suddenly, the entire dynamic of Paul's diatribe begins to come into focus, and it is not what we might have expected given what's been said in chapters 1 and 2. We'll look at what Paul, where Paul now seems to be heading next time.